shows. Join award-winning gardeners Chris Van Cleef and Teresa Byington as they chat with rose lovers and experts from around the globe. With each episode, you'll gain valuable knowledge and insights to achieve the rose garden you've always dreamed of. Listen now as we explore the world of roses. Hello, friends. Today's show is such a special treat. Joining me are two of our favorite rosarians who just happen to be award-winning garden designers. Michael Marriott and Paul Zimmerman are here to share tips and tricks on garden design, a subject we get so many questions about. They're also going to be sharing about the garden tours they're leading this year. So this is going to be a fun chat. Let's get started. Hey guys, welcome back to Rose Chat. Hello. Nice to be back, Teresa. Michael, good to talk to you as always. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. We'll be meeting up during the summer, won't we, Paul? Yes, we will. A couple, yeah, summer and then again fall. It just uh, we yeah. can't seem to shake each other, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> and if so much magic happens, we don't want that to happen. No shaking, no shaking. <laughs> well, guys, it is so great to have you both and to hear from you on a subject that many of our garden friends want to know more about. And we've been dreaming of gardening all winter, and we're ready to hit the next stage. So, Michael, I'm going to start with you. Help us get this design process started. Whether it's a brand new garden, or maybe we're just doing a part of our garden, or tweaking an established bed. Yes, that that planning part is is so important. Um, and uh, it, it's actually people might think, well, it's a bit it's a bit boring to have to plan it. But actually, it's very, very important if you want to get a, a good result. Uh, and I think it's, it's rather fun, actually. You know, you can spend hours looking through uh, catalogs and books and websites and things like that and see what sort of roses you, uh, you like the look of. Uh, and then you actually maybe get down to putting pencil to paper and uh, uh, drawing out the area where you want to uh, put the rose garden and then you know just uh, uh, start drawing it out. And um, I think one of the most important things actually is is when you're doing the research is to um, make a list of all the roses you think you might want to include in the garden and, and list them uh, under their different colours. Uh, so you'd have a column for white, one for pink, one for yellow, one for apricot, one for red, uh, and then you just have a, a brief description by each one, you know, the height. Um, whether it repeat flowers or not, um, sort of fragrance and things like that. And then maybe you can grade them according to which ones you really want to um, put into the garden and which ones you don't. But of course, the, the important thing is, is actually deciding whether there's a suitable space for your roses, uh, for a rose garden or rose border in your garden, um, and um, whether it's a suitable position in terms of of say shade you know is there, is it going to get enough sun um is there going to be too too much competition at the roots uh, and just what sort of space you can can allocate uh, to it uh, and then the other thing of course is is deciding what style of uh, rose garden you want uh, whether it's a formal one or a very informal one or a very very informal one you know is it, that's the great thing about roses is that they're so incredibly uh, versatile. Uh, they can you can fit them in just about every single style of of garden, and and also they're incredibly variable in size. So uh, if you've only got a small space, then you can concentrate on on small roses, uh, and if you've got a big space, then you can start expanding it into uh, having big shrubs, you know, which are sort of six foot by six foot or something like that, uh, and then incorporating climbers into the scheme. So. Uh, I mean, that's just the wonderful thing about roses. Nothing can touch them, uh, really. They're just such, uh, so much the most garden-worthy of all plants uh, for, for so many reasons. There's no other plant that you can uh, allocate a whole garden just to have to this one plant. Uh, so, yeah, do some research, um, see what you can find, and, um, and work from there. Well, I, I completely agree with Michael. The key word is planning. Um, you know, you, you, if you're doing a new garden from scratch, you only get one shot at it. 
Uh, and that's and the more work you do ahead of time, and that includes things like soil preparation, which we've talked about in other shows. But the planning stage is so key. And and if you take, you know, you can do something as simple as as graph paper, one square equals one foot mm-hmm. or one or, you know, however you wish to do it in, 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 uh, in metric. And, and then begin to draw the plants at the size that they're going to be. And that kind of gives you the idea of spacing as well. It's too tempting to cram a bunch of plants in. Um, and play with it a little bit. And Michael talked about lists. And one of the things that I like doing, and, and I do this for clients as well, um, is I actually like using a spreadsheet. And I'll do the name of the plant in the left column. And the headings across the top will be the the seasons, you know, early spring, late spring, early summer, late summer, early fall, late fall. And then I will take photographs of the plants. With the roses, generally, they're going to spring bloom all season, so you're okay there. But when you're layering in perennials, I like to take photos of the perennials and drag them into the cells under their respective blooming season. Um, and if it spends several seasons, you drag several photographs. So that gives you a visual guide to what the garden's going to look like in terms of color harmony. Um, but it also then begins to give you an idea of, am I going to have color all season long? Because it's very tempting to do everything that's going to bloom in the spring, and then you have nothing in the summer. Um, and for me, for example roses shut down in the summer because of my heat you know i don't have much roses mm-hmm. in july because it's so hot but that's when my agastache comes in that's when my rudbeckia comes in that's when my echinacea comes in that's my color and so by doing that planning ahead of time and understanding the blooming cycle of the plants and the color harmony of the plants that extra work is going to pay off in droves later on and basically it's saving from moving a lot of plants later on when you realize you've made a mistake and by the way you're going to make mistakes when you first start designing gardens <laughs> I look back at some of the designs I did in early days, and, and Michael, I'm sure you feel the same. And I go, what was I even remotely thinking on that one? <laughs> <laughs> no, all of mine were perfect right from the start, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> That's that British horticultural one, one education, thing I Michael. About... Sorry? <laughs> what did you say? I said that was that British horticultural education you had. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, uh, yes, you're bound to make mistakes. I quite agree. Um, but the thing to remember that actually all plants, uh, and including roses, are actually very easy to move. So if you if you do make a mistake, um, then they're, they're actually very easy to move uh, at the appropriate time. So for roses, that would be sort of uh, in the winter sometime. Uh, and for perennials, they're, they're very um, forgiving. They can be moved almost uh, any time at all, really. But that's during the, uh, generally during the winter. And actually, that's a very important part is to, um, when you've got it planted and it's all starting to look uh, pretty full of flowers, is, is start looking at it critically. Uh, and, you know, is that, is that a good combination? Um, are the heights right? Uh, is that planted too closely? And you, you make notes, and uh, then during the winter or, or when, whenever is the appropriate time, you can you can tweak it a bit, and that's what the top gardeners do. They they'll assess their garden during the, the most important during the flowering period, and and see how it can be improved. And that's the fun part, actually. If you just plant it and then just maintain it, you know, just weed it and deadhead it and whatever. Um, then yeah, it's, it's okay, but it's a bit boring. But the fun part is trying to make it really as beautiful as possible. Yeah, it's that tweaking aspect that Michael's talking yeah. about. And and another thing I would I always encourage people to do, and I do it when I design gardens. I leave empty spaces, and that's a neat place to seed maybe some annuals, or maybe you're going to raise some foxgloves from seed, and 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 in pots or in a cold frame and put it in there, or plants like that that aren't necessarily going to come back and be perennials every single year. And that's a fun way to play with the garden and kind of change the effect and the look of it from season to season. Absolutely. I think that's a brilliant idea, Paul. And I'm uh, over here in, in the UK. Um, I always encourage people to um, to plant the annual called Facelia tanacitifolia. Um, Beautiful. Which is, which, do you know it? I do, actually. You showed it to me when I was there last time. Oh, yeah. And it, it's, it's, it's um, the easiest thing to grow it's got beautiful blue flowers it's incredibly attractive to bees and the whole of our insects and actually it's a native to to north america um and it's used a lot for ground cover but a few seeds of those sp- sprinkled here or there and everywhere uh are absolutely brilliant and the great thing about annuals is that they don't have a um much of a invasive root system as opposed to a lot of biennials and perennials especially they can be very invasive and they can uh, start 
uh, growing right around the base of the roses, which the, the roses really won't like at all. So, um, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I, I do encourage people to, to grow uh, annuals. Uh, and the other ones, you know, things like um, Nigella, uh, Love in the Mist, uh, and um, Cosmos is the other one, of course, which uh, looks absolutely beautiful. Yeah, Cosmos is beautiful. I've actually got I've actually got a pack of Nigella seeds sitting on my desk that I'm going to be sowing in about a month. So, <laughs> <laughs> of all the flowers I grow, Cosmos is the one that Mr. G says. Are you going to plant Cosmos this year? You know, that's my favorite. You know, he's the tomato guy, and he likes the roses, of course. But I always get questioned to be sure especially the white ones. He likes the white purity ones. So Cosmos is big around here. I quite agree. The white ones are just so beautiful. I think all these these hybridized fancy ones, uh, they leave me cold, really. Um, so, yeah, the, the pure white ones are absolutely fantastic. So beautiful and so delicate. And great cut flower, too. Yes, they are. Well, guys, let's move in. You've touched on it a little bit, garden styles. Now, there's so many garden styles. But um, I would love for um, each of you to share one of your favorite garden styles. And, Paul, I'm going to start with you. So what would be one of your favorite garden styles and kind of help us achieve that? Well, I mean, I like all styles um, uh, of gardens. I mean, I think they're all beautiful. Um, you know, the, obviously the English cottage garden style is, is stunning, but I'm going to let Michael talk about that. He is <laughs> Yes. Unbelievably talented at that. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna preach cottage garden style to an Englishman. I ain't gonna, I'm not going down that road. <laughs> but um, I actually like. I also really like the formal style, um, which is more French, I think, in, in that style. And part of it is I've got kind of an engineering brain, so I like the the symmetry of of that kind of a style. Mm -hmm. And that style is more. Um, there is a symmetrical aspect to it. The first thing I do when I design a garden like that is I look for what's my axis in the garden. Maybe it's a view from a kitchen window. Maybe it's a rear doorway. Maybe it's a porch where people want to sit. And what's my sight line? And then I try to imagine, you know, the garden on one side and the garden on the other side of a formal style garden, generally with a center area. Um, and that's that's how I begin to shape those beds. And then within the context of that, you can do what I call, um, I call it controlled chaos is, is the word that I like to use. And there's a garden in England called Modest Font Abbey, which is kind of a good example mm -hmm. of this. But you can take boxwood or I'm designing a garden in Southern California where the borders of a formal rose garden are going to be lavender um, because it's a Mediterranean mm -hmm. climate. I, I want a dry plant. And, and that formality and that structure of the boxwood, the lavender, whatever it is you choose to use uh, is, is totally up to you. Within that, you can kind of get kind of a, then a, kind of a riot of color going on. Um, or you can just do a more formal type planting, which is just masses of the same plants. So it's the structure and the bones um, that you're looking for in that more formal style of garden. And the last thing I'm going to say is, is don't forget height. Always, always, always think, how can I take a garden vertical? That could be an upright U. It could be uh, tree roses. It could be a, a pillar, an obelisk. It could be an arbor that you walk underneath. But always think up and keep that structure in a garden. Um, so that that's that kind of formal style, which I really enjoy. I, I, I like designing those kind of gardens. It appeals to my, my, my engineering brain. Well, they are really beautiful. Um, when my daughter lived in England, uh, of course, cottage gardens were everywhere. But one of her neighbors had a metal fence around their small front garden. And it was about a square, um, a small, but it was the perfect knot garden. And it was tiny, but there was so much there to see and all the different colors of green. They were so soothing and calming, even though the lines were straighter. It was still very, very calming. And it was just such a pleasure to see it. I, I just loved it. Yeah, it's a very structured kind of garden. You mentioned knot garden. Um, for those of you who aren't familiar with a knot garden, that's where you would have your your structural plant, be it whatever it may be, boxwood or whatever, and you would weave patterns within the context of the garden. It may be something as simple as X's that cross, but those create pockets that you can then plant within as well. So the the the, the structural plant that you're framing this whole thing becomes part of the integral part of the design. Very beautiful. Okay, Michael, you're on. We want to go to the very heart of cottage gardening. So okay. it's all about you. I, I would just, just, um, I, I fully agree with what Paul is saying. And, and I think one of the, just going to formal gardens, uh, I think one of the important things to remember, to, to sort of think about when you're designing it is, is what would it look like in winter? Um, I mean, roses like, like a lot of other 
deciduous shrubs and, and perennials, and they're not they're not they're not the most beautiful things uh, in winter. I, I get I get rather cross with people saying they're uh, upright um, sticks, you know, bare sticks, because that, just about everything else in the garden doesn't look terribly exciting in the, in the winter. So what I think is important to 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 consider when you're designing the garden is what it will look like in winter, and that's where the the, the, the boxwood hedging, or over here we use a lot of um, yew, Taxus baccata, just and we can keep that whatever size we want to, and I guess that would be the same in uh, in North America as well. Um, so yeah, think about what it what it will look like in winter with that uh, that hedging. And I always remember at, um, at David Austin's uh, there the. the um, if you if you uh, look at some of the pictures of the formal garden at David Austin's, is this. Uh, they've got the, the hedging either side of the canal um, where mm. the, the hedging goes in and out like a serpentine. And I remember they looking at it once during the middle of the winter when it was covered in snow. Uh, and these this serpentine hedging was picked out and it just looked so beautiful. So, yeah, th think about what it would look like in winter, not just a sort of a <laughs> nothing there at all, some sort of structure. But yeah, cottage garden style. Um, I think it's very beautiful. You, you know, you've got such a lot of choice, uh, possible combinations of of putting the plants together. And one of the great advantages of it is that um, uh, it it's a great way of helping your roses to stay healthy. The trouble with a, of a formal, a sort of pure rose garden is you've got a monoculture. And of course, any monocultures tend to encourage the spread of pests and diseases. Uh, whereas if you mix up your roses with other plants, um, then uh, the, the, hopefully the other plants will help to attract in beneficial insects uh, and they'll help to control uh, any pests around. And also because the roses aren't cheap by jowl, then the, um, the spores up from the, from the diseases won't be able to spread quite so easily from, from one plant to the next. Uh, and so uh, it, it's uh, from that point of view of, of helping everything to stay as healthy as possible, uh, free from, from problems is, is great. But you've got, that's when you start getting the wonderful combinations uh, of, of plants. And so you can either sort of look at complementary colors so you know you might if you've got a, a a pink rose you might want to put it with a a deeper pink um uh, uh plant a perennial of some sort or you can go for a contrasting thing so if you think about the color wheel it's worth looking at the color wheel um where you've got different colors all around and those on uh, on opposite sides of the wheel uh, will be contrasting colors and they go well very well together um and but as opposed to ones which are sort of halfway round, as it were, or quarter of the way round, they, they really won't go so, so well together. Uh, and so, uh, I, oh, but then one's either side of a certain colour, like the pink, then they'll, they'll, um, uh, they'll go well together. So it's worth just having a quick look at that colour wheel. It sounds a bit complicated, but really it's, it's very, very simple stuff. And it's a very good um, first step to achieving something um, very beautiful. The other trick that I use a lot is to actually uh, pick a flower if you can, um, whether it's a rose or a perennial, and then offer it round to other plants. And then when you put it next to one plant, it'll it'll oh gosh, and no, that's horrible. It just doesn't go well together because the colour is not right. Or and then some it'll look well, oh, that's okay, not too bad. But then some you'll put two flowers together from different plants, and they'll just absolutely. <laughs> You know, it just look so beautiful. So somehow they they work together like magic. I suppose it's a bit like in cooking. You know, you, you might put two ingredients together and you, you end up with something fairly uh, inedible. But uh, you put uh, another two ingredients together and they, they really work together to create something uh, even more uh, beautiful than before. So, yeah, it, I, I, I love the... Um, the uh, the cottage style. The, the, the most important thing to remember is, is, as I mentioned, I think earlier on a bit, is not to uh, have, you, not to choose plants that are too vigorous. Um, otherwise, they'll start growing. Uh, they'll start swamping the roses, uh, and uh, they'll stop water 
from going down to the roots and uh, they'll suck up the great proportion of the nutrients uh, and so the rose will suffer uh, as a result. So um, plant anything you plant with roses, perennial or whatever, uh, biennial, give them a, a good distance apart, not too far that they're sort of separate entities. You want them to just to cuddle up to each other on the outer extremities uh, and um, but then not let the roots uh, compete with those of the roses. And um, some plants, you know, like Alcamilla mollis, ladies' mantle, that's dreadful for seed, setting seed all over the place. So if they start doing that, then be a bit, um, bit brutal and uh, dig them up and plant <laughs> them up uh, somewhere else. And even things like foxgloves, uh, they actually, if you dig up a foxglove during the summer, it has a huge, great big root system. And so again, uh, foxgloves, they're great for self-sowing themselves around the place and they come up in just the most wonderful places. But if they're right around the base of the rose, just, just move it away a bit uh, so it doesn't compete with that uh, of the rose. Well, uh, Michael's point about the, the other plants being with beneficial insects, I can give you a, an example of that. You've both been to the Biltmore uh, Rose Garden on the Biltmore State in Asheville. And when I first started working with them about 12 years ago, that was just roses. There was nothing else in that garden other than some bulb fields mm -hmm. and things like that. And they had horrible insect problems. And so we began to work on integrating other plant material to where now the outer borders of that garden are a mixed border of roses, yes, but a lot of perennials. And perennials researched to draw in and keep the beneficial insects in that area. And they've pretty much eliminated insecticides in that garden since they did that. So wow. that's an example of what you can do to create that. Um, and, and the only other thing I want to I totally echo Michael on the color wheel, by the way, that is an invaluable tool and to take the time to learn it. Like you said, it's simple once you begin to understand it. The other thing with cottage gardening that, that and I, I'm speaking from experience when I first started playing in my own gardens many years ago, is it's very tempting to put one of this and one of that and pack a lot of plants in. <laughs> and you end up with a very disharmonious look to it. And what I try to do when I design that style of garden, when I've got my graph paper or my landscape software, or whatever it is I'm using, I actually draw out shapes on the, on the, on, before I fill in the plants. And I try to make sure that my shapes are reasonably similar in terms of size and square footage that they cover. So maybe it's nine square feet or whatever the case may be. And in the case of roses, nine square feet, maybe it's three roses. That's all it's going to be. But then if I'm going to fill that with Coreopsis, maybe it's going to be a dozen Coreopsis to, to create that shape and fill that shape. And the shapes can snake in and out of each other. They don't have to be like blocks or blobs. But that, that's a way to, when you're beginning to sort of not fall into that trap of one of this and one of that. Yeah, absolutely right, Paul. And the other thing is, if you've got a good size border, is to actually do some repetition uh, of the perennials. So, you know, things like, um, you know, a salvia or um, a lamb's ear or something like that, you might want to repeat it uh, along the front of the border to, to, uh, to help to join it together, as it were. That's funny. Yeah, I've got, funny you mentioned lambs here. That's exactly what I used in my garden. I've got a, two gardens that are on opposite sides of each other, separated by a lawn between the house and the barn. And both, both of them have lambs ears repeating themselves across the front of the border. <laughs> and and yeah. with lambs ears, it's that silver, which is great. I love that color, but also the weight of the leaves and the foliage. But mm -hmm. yeah, it threads everything together really nicely and draws the eye down, down the, you know, whatever side you're sitting on, draws your eye down both borders. Yeah. And the thing to remember about, perennials, they come in a huge variety of different shapes and sizes. So roses, to a certain extent, uh, they, they conform more or less to one sort of shape. They're, they're sort of shrubs. They're, they're, they're all shrub roses, whether it's a hybrid tea or an English rose or floribunda or whatever. Um, uh, and a lot of them have rather large flowers. So it's good to uh, look at contrasting that with, with things like uh, mullein or... Um, uh, um, foxgloves or um, uh, delphiniums, things like that, tall, spiky things, uh, which will contrast greatly with the shape, uh, the more informal shape of the roses. Uh, and also, because the roses tend to have rather larger flowers, then look at uh, flowers, uh, perennials with smaller flowers. So things like uh, nepeta, and I know you call it nepeta. <laughs> Um, I think it's Nepeta, Catmint. Nepeta. <laughs> yeah. So, so you know, the, the, you've got the contrast there. You, you, you're playing not only with colour, 
but also with shape of plant and uh, size and shape of flower. So it, it adds, and it all it, it can all get a bit. Uh, you think of it as, oh, it's just too much, but you know, just as I say play around with it and and uh, see what you can do, and then tweak it afterwards if it if it's if you think you can improve it. Yeah, and you can also another contrast that I always try to focus on is foliage. Um, you know, roses. Michael talked about roses having similar you know flower shapes, and they tend to. The foliage on roses is very similar as well. I mean, there's there's subtle variations, but by and large, it's a pretty consistent. So if you take something feathery like a like a bronze fennel, for example, or something along or an artemisia or something along those lines, then you've got something that has really got some some contrast to the foliage style as well, which makes for an interesting texture. And um, the repeat aspect too that that I would highly recommend to people is let's let's say you're using uh, a blue salvia, for example. Well don't feel that you have to repeat blue salvia. You could you could do a blue salvia, a white salvia, a pink salvia, but because the the, the the bloom shape and the growth habit and the size are fairly similar. You're going to get that repeat in a more subtle kind of way. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And then the other thing that comes to mind is um, you want to, 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 to achieve the most beautiful effect. You want the roses and the other plant, whatever it is, to flower at the same time. Uh, you want to try and have that sort of combination to sing together. Uh, mm-hmm. And so when you're choosing your other plant, um, try and choose ones that will, will flower at the same time as the roses. Um, and remember that, of course, roses are very rare, really, in the plant world in that they have such a long flowering season. So it depends where you are. They might start in sort of May, June or July or something like that, and they, they'll still be flowering way into the autumn. And so that gives two or three, four bites of the cherry. So, you know, you can start off with the early flowering uh, perennials uh, and then end up with the, the things like the asters and things like that, uh, and mm-hmm. gara, um, which flower much later in the year. And so you can, you can, you know, you don't just have one hit uh, at it. You can, you can get two, three hits of trying to get those beautiful combinations. You mentioned um, not planting certain plants too close to a rose. Could you expand on that a little bit on give us some tips on adding roses to whatever design we're doing, like things we shouldn't do or maybe plants we shouldn't add or things that we should. Um, Give us just a little bit more on um, the adding roses. One of the classics, I suppose, is is the cat mint called Six Hills Giant. Um, which is a, a, a real thug, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of um, perennials are fairly thuggish by nature. Really, they, you know, they sort yes. of, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I jokingly say that their sort of um, their aim in the, in life is to take over the world. Uh, they they got pre- a pretty flower, with, uh, but they they really aim to take over the world, and so they they creep around all over the place with gay abandon. Uh, and so you've just got to be careful not to allow them to, to do that too much. Mm-hmm. And uh, as I mentioned Alcamilla mollis, Lady's Mantle, uh, earlier on. Quite a few perennials will self-seed themselves around the place. And that can be really nice, actually. I mean, that uh, I always <laughs> say in my own garden, uh, the most beautiful parts, actually the ones that have, have done it themselves. Nature has done it themselves. <laughs> so uh, in all respects, don't try and fight nature uh, <laughs> whether it's trying to control pests um, or, or trying to control your garden too much, uh, allow those happy accidents to, to, hap- to, to, um, to occur. And uh, you'll be amazed how, how wonderful it, it, it can be. And if it doesn't work, then, you know, it's, it's, uh, you can just dig it up and, and move it around or, or get rid of it or whatever. Um, so yeah, I suppose when you're planting a perennial, you, you know, say your rose grows um, sort of four foot across. So from the uh, from the where the where the root is to the outside of the plant, it's going to be two foot, and then you're going to plant a perennial uh, next to it, which say grows um, two foot across. So it's going to be an inch from the center to the uh, outside. So I'll plant those uh, three foot apart. So the perennial. Uh, foot of the perennial plus the two foot of the rose that makes three feet so I plant the perennial to be uh, about three feet uh, away and in the first year when the roses um, are still fairly young then uh, I would um, be sure not to allow 
things like Six Hills Giant and other rather floppy perennials to to overwhelm the rose, roses next to them. Uh, in in latter years, it might be might be better, might be all right. It depends what sort of rose you got. But in the first year, you want to allow your rose to get away nice and strongly uh, and not be overwhelmed by um, mm. by your thuggish nature neighbors. Excellent. Um, Paul, anything you would add to that? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, we this kind of takes us back to the very beginning of the conversation where we talked about planting your garden on paper beforehand. If you, you know, draw your, if your rose is three feet across and you draw to scale a circle that's three feet, then you can draw your perennial at the same, with a, a circle that's two feet across. And then as long as the edges maybe touch each other, but that's going to get your, that's going to get your center three feet apart, as Michael was just explaining. And that's why that pre-planting stage becomes so important to, you know, as Michael's saying, you have a baby rose bead, a container rose, or a bare root rose. You think, well, I can plant something a foot away from that. Well, you have to think about how big it's going to be at, at ultimately one, at some point in time. Um, and I agree with the invasive. I've got a uh, an upright phlox. It grows about, um, <laughs> yeah, it grows about five feet, almost two meters. And um, it, it self-seeds like crazy. Um, but I love it because it's kind of like a purple, bluish color. And it looks great amongst the roses. But all I do is, as you know, as Michael was saying, when it gets too close to a rose, I just divide the clump, dig it up, and I move it. And then I have flocks in another part of the garden. Um, so that's, you know, you want to stay away from something that's invasive, obviously. But as Michael says, perennials, I've got Napita. My lamb's ears are, are need to be divided this year. That's what they're going to do. But you can either say, well, gosh, they're taking over the garden. Or, look, I have more free plants now. <laughs> Absolutely. One all thing that's... Can I just pick yes. up on one thing that Paul said? In, he mentioned uh, paper, Adrian. I, I, when I design gardens, that's the first thing I, 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 I don't, I'm not a computer person at all. And, and how people design gardens on computer, <laughs> I don't know at all. Uh, I've got a, a piece of graph paper, as Paul said, a pencil and a rubber. And uh, that rubber gets used a lot. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you, you know, you can make changes as you go along uh, and it, it's very satisfying and you can you can gradually get there and then you, you put it to one side and you have a look at it again. And the, the absolutely crucial thing, which I think a lot of people don't don't take notice of, is the scale. So make mm -hmm. sure that when you when you've um, when you've when you know where you want to plant, uh, put a rose garden or rose border or whatever, make sure that you uh, measure it out accurately uh, and then put it onto the paper, as Paul said, with you know one square is one foot or whatever, one square is three foot or whatever. Uh, make sure that you draw it up accurately and you mark on the piece of paper what that scale is. I, there's, I, I've heard this not infrequently. Of, of These are professionals doing this of getting the scale wrong and they end up by having the plants all the roses six foot apart as opposed to three foot apart so be wary or the other or the other way around you know, you've got you order twice as many plants as you as you need so uh, do take that uh, very carefully yeah one one square being one foot or one square being one yard can yield two very different results in the end <laughs> <laughs> for sure, but yeah, you can. And you can also go to an office supply store. They make lots, lots of little templates that are really convenient. You know, you, if your scale is one quarter inch equals one foot, which is pretty standard in America, you know, then they help. They'll have a circle that's three feet, a circle that's two feet, a circle that's eighteen inches, and that's a real quick way. And you know, it's three or four dollars in an office supply store. There's some nice little tools you could use that way as well. I have a book. Um, it's a composition book, but it's all graph paper, and it's very dog-eared. And I just keep adding more designs as I change each year, which I do. One of the things that has been invaluable to me in the ongoing process of designing in my garden are pictures and not just the glamour shots far, far away. Take a picture of the garden as it looks um, frequently. So, you know, you know, you, you recognize those thugs or you recognize, okay, it's worth it, or this needs to be divided. So my memory, you know, everything looks so beautiful in my memory, but maybe not so much on the picture. So, Photographs have been really important to me. Photographs are incredibly helpful. And, and that goes back to what Michael was saying earlier. Make notes during the year of what perennials need to be divided. Because come January, February, mm -hmm. March, you won't remember because they may go gone to dormancy at that point in time. And I like to move mm -hmm. perennials when they're just starting to emerge in the spring. I find for me that's when they move well. And with photographs, another nice tip that someone told me years ago 
is um, to see if your garden is interesting in terms of the contrasts and the shapes and the things that we've been talking mm -hmm. about. Take a photograph of your garden and then convert it to black and white. And if the oh. black and white photograph is still interesting, then you're on to something. Because now you've taken away all the color and all the glamour, and now you're just looking at shape and you're just looking at texture. Mm, that's a good one. I've actually been taking all of these photographs and sending them to Walmart for very cheap, uh, photocopying and you can actually do that in black and white so for three or four dollars I get a stack of pictures I can see them I'm putting them up on my board so I can look at them and study them but you can also do that in black and white so I, just uh, maybe a little inspiration for people We're, both Paul and I have got books which we've written uh, which might be of help so um, mine's called uh, mine's called just called roses um, is it, no, is it called? Yeah, it's just called Roses. I had to remind myself. There's an American version. And Paul, what's your what's your book called? My, my book is called Everyday Roses. Yeah, and I think both both our books <coughs> contain good um, good inspiration for for different sort of designs and ways of incorporating roses into the garden. Oh, I have both the books. They're absolutely outstanding. So. I'm glad you mentioned that, Michael. Now we're going to move into that area that's kind of hard. We're going to talk favorites. Uh, favorites are always changing, just like our gardens are changing. But Michael, could you share a few of your favorite roses to include in a mixed garden? Um, the, the thing to go for, it, the, the, because roses are so variable, I always like to have a, a range of different shapes and sizes. So I love the, the, the wilder roses. Uh, you know, the actual species roses um, that you might find growing in the wild or ones that just sort of look similar. So some of the species do grow very big, but um, uh, but some of them are smaller. Uh, and they, uh, although they only flower once, then they have the great advantage of hips uh, in the autumn and often lasting through the winter. Um, <clears throat> so you've got things like uh, Virginiana, um, which can grow quite big, and but they don't need any looking after at all. So you know, you just plant them and enjoy them really, and they they they're able to um, to cope with very very tough conditions. But if you wanted something that re did repeat flower but looked similar, you could have something maybe like Kew Gardens, which has got white single flowers, and one of the great advantages of that is got absolutely no no thorns uh, at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, if you want something a bit more traditional, one of my favourites is one called Lady of Shalott, which has got um, gorgeous uh, apricot-coloured flowers on it. Depending on where you are in, in, uh, in North America, depending on what climate you are, uh, it can either be grown actually as a climber or as a sort of fairly substantial shrub. But it, that starts flowering very early in the season. It just carries on and carries on until really the, the hard frosts um, uh, stop it. Uh, and it's got a, a gorgeous fragrance as well. It's not the strongest one fragrance, but it's the, the fragrance is just absolutely delicious. Uh, and then talking of fragrance, which I think is very important in a rose, uh, is is a, a smaller one called Desdemona, uh, which has got mm. creamy white flowers. It doesn't grow too tall, maybe about three foot, four foot, something like that, depending on how you prune it. And that has just the most gorgeous um, fragrance. And that also goes on flowering for a long time. But, you know, we all have our different tastes. So, um, you know, some people like the more hybrid tea, traditional hybrid tea type shape. There's some like singles, semi-doubles, uh, you know, the fully doubles of the old roses. I mean, talking of old roses, I'm, I always encourage people to, to look at the, uh, the once flowering old roses because, yes, they only flower once, but then they'll be often be flowering for five or six weeks of the year, which mm -hmm. is a lot longer than a lot of other things like peonies and irises do. And some of them are just so beautiful, such wonderful characters. Um, it's well worth putting one or two of those in uh, if you can. Uh, one of my favourite is one called Ispahan, uh, which has got pure, pure pink flowers, wonderful fragrance, tough as old weeds. Uh, and you can either grow it as a fairly substantial shrub or a climber. Oh, absolutely. I have that one. It is amazing. Uh, Paul, what are some of your favorites? 
Yeah, I mean, well, Michael, I'll take Michael's list to start with. Um, I <laughs> expand on that a bit. Absolutely. I'm going to give a shout out too for the single petaled roses, be they be species roses, be they, you know, tottering by gently, which is a David Austin, golden wings, white wings, all those come into mind. Um, you know, again, we talk about contrast in the garden. Well, there's a contrast in flower shape. Um, and there's just, there's something beautiful about them. The, 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 the single petaled roses plus uh, pollinators tend to like them because they can get into them. Um, that's an advantage to that. The old garden roses, absolutely. You know, they as, as Michael said, they get the term once flowering, which sounds like they're like here and there and it's gone in a day, but they're four to five weeks. I'm going to give a shout out for the Gallicas. Uh, if you like purple roses, the, nothing. I've never seen a modern rose that comes close to like Cardinal Richelieu or Charles de Mills. Um, they just don't, and they have a charm all their own. And then um, climbers. Uh, don't forget climbers in your garden. And I live in the southeast. A great class of climbers for me are noisettes. Um, I grow Revdor. I've had it in my garden for 20 years. And what I like about these kind of climbers, and David Austin has a series of repeat kind of ramblers as well in there as well, is that the growth habit of the canes is not so stiff. A lot of modern climbers, while they're beautiful, the, the, the canes are very, very stiff and, and almost too rigid to work with and i like the grace of a climber that just sort of drapes on a fence or drapes on an arbor and the laterals just kind of cascade and shower off so i would make a, a great shout out for those more relaxed kind of climbers that i think they should be incorporated in any kind of garden and then other plants yeah i mean i darlow's enigmas in my garden i've got a, just a mishmash of stuff in my garden that i love one rose that I, I don't know if it's available in england but it is now becoming available in america is called Petite Prince, organized by Delbard in France. Um, I've had a dozen of them in my garden for 20 years. I used to work with Delbard. It's mauve, like a sterling silver or a blue girl, intensely fragrant, and probably the most disease-resistant rose in my garden. It is an astonishing breakthrough in mauve roses. It's called Petite Prince, uh, named after the book The Little Prince. And that's, that's, a, that's one of those roses that I think I'll always have in a garden, no matter what. I think the story goes, was it last year, Paul, I was at a big box store and I text you and said, is this the one? And it was Petite Prince. And you said, yes, buy it. I bought three. I did not regret it. It's, they yeah, it's, bloomed it's, and bloomed and bloomed. Yeah, it's an, it's an amazing rose. It's just incredible. And so, but it's one of the beauties. But yeah, but you know, like Michael said, mix and match. I mean, if you stop and think about it, you know, you're, you're a gardener and someone comes up to you and says, you know, I got this group of plants. Let me tell you what they do. They come in every color of the rainbow, but blue. They'll grow from one foot to 30 foot up a tree. And they basically, most of them will bloom all season or give you an incredible show in the spring for five weeks. I just describe roses. Mm-hmm. And, and to me, that's that roses. That's why roses are the ultimate landscape plant. There's, there's, any need that you need for a, an ornamental plant in your garden, a rose will fill it. Yeah, absolutely right, Paul. I mean, I, 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 um, I, it's, it, it's just easily the most garden-worthy of all plants. There's nothing can uh, even start to touch it, really. And uh, why people don't uh, plant more of them, I, I never understand. I mean, I, I think I, I know why. It's because it's, it's the people often associated with, um, with diseases, but actually, as you said with um, Petite Prince, uh, there's a lot of varieties being, um, being bred and introduced recently, which uh, are super, super healthy. Uh, and so what, one of the Austins is Olivia Rose Austin, which is uh, fantastically healthy. So it is important when you're looking at um, to, to, to pick a rose uh, for your garden is to try and choose ones that uh, you know are going to be healthy without having to spray them at all uh, in your garden. And so that will vary according to where you are, what climate you are. So you talked about the noisettes. You see the noisettes in this country are a bit hit and miss, really. So one and two of them are okay, but uh, they, they really like um, uh, hotter climates. Same as the tea roses, not the hybrid teas, the tea roses, they, they like a really hot climate. Um, but they, they don't like it when it's cold at all. So... Uh, yes, do do try and choose varieties that you know are going to be tough and reliable and healthy in your climate. No, that, that's very important in the United States because our climate, is, as, as we all know, is so vast. And that's where regional information, um, you know, local rose societies, local plant societies, local botanical gardens, if they have a no spray program, there's some regional trials going on. And so, yeah, 
that's very, very important to research that. And, and, and I will echo the tea roses. I know Michael can't grow them, but they, in the southeast where I live, um, black spot country, they're the healthiest group of roses I could get. I, I have yet to find a modern rose that can rival a tea rose in my climate. Such good ideas. In zone 5B, we can't do the, the beautiful noisettes. I have enjoyed them so much at the Biltmore. I just kind of stand by the beds of the noisettes. The fragrance, the charm, they're just nothing to beat it. But it just doesn't work here. But we do very well with roses from the Easy Elegance Collection and particularly Music Box. And one that is just outstanding is Tom Caruth's Rose Easy on the Eyes. It is a Helthemia and it is so beautiful and fragrant. It's like the perfect rose. So I would certainly want our listeners to think about that one. And then there's the Petite Pink by David Slezak, the little Sweetheart Roses. It's a shrub that's just perfect performs all summer long so they're there as the as the guy said there's just so many to choose from and uh, they'll be your favorites if they're not now now guys before we start talking about these amazing tours is there one final tip or word of encouragement that you would say to our backyard gardeners that are ready to start designing today so paul i'm going to start with you yeah i would say the tip that I would give is that this is a learning process as well as a whole lot of fun. You know, don't get, you know, we, we talked about the drawings. We talked about the, do your research, don't do your legwork, but don't get bogged down in that. As Michael said, these are things that you could move around. Um, you know, you could go to a garden center, for example, when everything's in bloom and they'll look at you like you're nuts. And I've done this before. And I'll just start grabbing plants and putting them next to each other in the pots to see what works. <laughs> so the main thing I would suggest is don't be afraid of this process and have a lot of fun doing it. It's a wonderful, creative thing that I hope in my lifetime my garden is never finished because that would be very disappointing. Absolutely. Okay, Michael, words of wisdom. <laughs> yeah, Paul is, is absolutely right. Um, just just have a go. Uh, it, you know, you're, 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 you'll learn a whole lot of, in the process. Um, you'll have fun. Uh, have plenty of paper, a good rubber, and a pencil, and just uh, just get on and do it. And then, when you get to the exciting part of part of uh, actually planting them, and you you can stand back and see them all planted, uh, and then flowering, it'll be so satisfying to know that you've done it all yourself. So just have a go and uh, see how you get on. And then, yeah, be ready to tweak it and, and tweak it forever. You know, tweak it for the next 20 years until you're yeah. vaguely satisfied. And it's, that's the fun part. <laughs> I've been thinking this that's, one. Uh, and, of course, just incorporate and then seeing new plants. Oh, yes, that's a wonderful plant. Yeah, I'll, 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 that, that one could go absolutely beautifully with that one. Uh, but the thing that I, I – this is slightly off, off piece, but uh, I um, – before you start incorporating plants, just making sh make sure that they're well. I, I love plants that I know are good, and and uh, not plants that are just introduced on the basis of novelty, uh, and because novelty often doesn't mean beauty. So you know, try and choose plants that are you know are really beautiful plants. Yeah, one of Absolutely. my favorite stories along those lines, the, the, the great garden designer of the last century, Vita Zackville West, who did Sissinghurst and her husband, um, I, was, I had a book of hers that she had written and she talks about, and she was, this is like well into her career when she was world famous, and she talks about going to the garden center and buying a plant without any clue where she's going to put it, and then spends <laughs> the next three days wandering all over Sissinghurst with the thing in a pot figuring out where it was going to go. And and that, to me, when I read that very early in my career, I thought, well, that's very liberating because if she couldn't, if she couldn't run no right off the bat, there's no pressure on me now. <laughs> Absolutely. Especially when you've been, I've been tweaking this garden for almost 33 years. So uh, a lot of plants have come and gone. I miss some of them. Some I'm glad they're gone, but I always have to make room for the new ones because I'm just as excited about spring now as I was the first year. So it's just one of those things that just grows with you. It just never diminishes. Now, guys, we want to talk about tours. Now, you've both done several tours, but what I've noticed about your tours is they're a little bit different. They include beautiful gardens, but you also weave in education and extra time just to savor the surroundings. So could you tell our listeners some stories from previous tips so they can kind of get a feel for what your trips are like? 
And Paul, I'll start with you. Yeah, I think one of the yeah, you talk about education. I mean, that's that's always sort of been my bailiwick in, in or actually I call it, actually call it de-education, trying to demystify all the you know <laughs> myths that are out there about roses. And um, but yeah, I, I one of my favorite things is we were wandering through Montesfont with the group, and, and the head gardener couldn't meet us, and I'm so that's fine. I know this garden well enough, and and we came across a rose. I think it was Louise Odier, the great old bourbon that had been pegged, mm-hmm. and um, was was wonderful because we were able to do a sp- completely spontaneous lesson on how to peg roses why you peg roses <laughs> what happens when you peg a rose and how to treat them and and that those are the things that i absolutely loved about it as well um just those spontaneous moments of wandering through the garden and and one of the things i try to do on my tours is i always tell people at the very beginning if i can give you three or four things that you can take home and replicate in your own garden on the scale that you garden in we've had a very successful tour oh that's good that's really good okay michael what stories come to your mind um just just the the enthusiasm that uh, that um and camarad, camarad, camaraderie uh, mm-hmm. that happens when people get together who have a common um uh, interest common love uh we my partner and i rosie we we run uh, todd tours uh, ourselves in in the uk what's what we find is that that people just have a wonderful time getting together and and they they obviously they listen to us and look around the garden but then um you know when we stop for for tea or the cakes or or lunch or something like that everybody starts chatting away and perhaps having a lovely time so that's one of the main things about it is just getting together and especially after the last three or four years when we've been a bit isolated Mm -hmm. uh then getting the chance to get together and and talk with like-minded people who share maybe the same ideas or got different ideas about how to, to do the garden. It's it's so wonderful, so, so exciting, brilliant. I echo Michael on the camaraderie as well. I mean, because, you know, Michael, Michael's tours and my tours are run very similarly in the sense that we eat meals together. And I think as much exchange happens over a lunch or dinner or over breakfast mm-hmm. or even riding on the bus, um, you know, the last tour I did in England last year, we did a WhatsApp uh, chat room for everybody to be able to communicate during the tour. It's still active, and they're still all talking to each other a year oh, later. Oh, gosh. That's so, so cool. Now, Paul, you're heading back to England this year and to France. So tell us about those Temptus. Yeah, we're doing England again this year. That is in um, the second week of June, I believe, and mixing it up a little this year. Um, you know, I've done the last two were Sissinghurst, Montesfont in that area, and then we headed up towards where Michael is. We're actually going to start in, um, in based around Cambridge. We're going to spend a day at Peter Beale's mm-hmm. Roses. Um, mm-hmm. Peter was a, was a mentor of mine, um, and sadly, he's no longer with us, but his nursery is still stunning. And we're going to have workshops and all kinds of fun stuff there. And then we're going to make our way over to the Cotswolds and visit mm-hmm. some gardens there, quite a few which, which are new to us. Uh, we're going to come to Michael's Garden um, as well. And uh, we're even throwing in an optional evening to go see a Shakespeare play at Stratford-on-Avon. <sighs> You yeah. are tempting us. <laughs> <laughs> well, for me personally, since I'm bringing Americans abroad, I try to make sure that the tours, whether it's France or, and France starts in Paris, obviously Bagatelle, Laie, and then we head down to the Loire mm-hmm. Valley. Michael, this is, I think, an echo of a tour that you did last year, if my memory serves. Um, yeah. Because uh, Michael and I booked through the same, yeah, Michael and I booked through the same tour company. And I try to make sure that we build in cultural aspects because, again, you know, we have pub lunches. Um, to make sure that those are built in and, and those cultural things as well. Yeah, because that, that's that's a big part of when you're coming from America, part of the traveling. And that's the reason why I, I don't do any more than two gardens a day. I will not do more than two a day because I want people to have time to have it maybe a free afternoon, um, which we did last year in Ludlow, when they, people were able to wander and experience the cultural aspect of being abroad as well. And no chrome and glass hotels. I detest those. Listen at you. Oh, this is just the best. Just the best. Now, you both are heading to Australia and New Zealand. So, Michael, tell us about that big trip. Yeah, that, that should be um, really good. It's uh, You can either do Australia or New Zealand, or you can do both um, one after the other. So, we start off in Adelaide, um, which is arguably one of the best uh, rose growing areas in the world actually they grow some beautiful mm-hmm. roses there so there's two three gardens around there and then we follow the the south coast along beautiful coastline 
um, drop off at one, two growers along the way down and then uh, end up in Melbourne and then visiting various gardens uh, around Melbourne, really, really good ones around there and to go to Werribee and various other ones. Uh, and then um, if you book on both, both Australia and New Zealand, then there's a couple of a days gap. And then we go on to New Zealand, we're exploring gardens in the North Island uh, of New Zealand. And um, so start off in Auckland, uh, the botanical gardens there. And then the, there's uh, lots of uh, amazing rose gardens. New Zealand generally is a, is a very, very good area for, for growing roses. Uh, and um, there'll be some very, very beautiful ones there. One of the roses that, um, one of the groups of roses uh, that we never, well, very, very rarely see um, over here in this country is the Alistair Clark ones. Um, that are based on Rosa Gigantia, which are not very hardy. And uh, so we'll be going to a garden uh, that has a, a very, very good collection of Alistair Clark varieties, which are, are very distinctive. So that'll be really exciting. I'm really looking forward to that. And in New Zealand, we'll be taking in the uh, Rotorua, which is where the all the um, thermal activity is, all the boiling, geyser, boiling mud and, and bursting geysers and things like that. So, uh, yeah, it'll, it's going to be... An amazing trip. Anything you want yeah, to add, some... Paul, to that one? Sure. Yeah. I mean, this is, you know, Michael and I started talking this, what, two years ago, Michael, I think maybe at least something like that. And, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, Mike, yeah, Michael has traveled there before. Michael's always has obviously has a long, illustrious career with David Austin. And when he retired, that sort of opened up opportunity to do something like this together. And, um, you know, we thought doing it together first, it's just going to be a lot of fun. Um, and we thought just a nice opportunity. And I have found from America, at least a lot of people have wanted to go to Australia, and New Zealand, but were reluctant to try to organize something from, you know, from this far away. Mm -hmm. So that that's what this helped because this is all your hotel, all your transportation, coach, flight, even the flight from Australia to New Zealand. You know, basically you land in Adelaide and you don't have to think until you finish in Auckland. Um, but we are doing some cultural things we're doing um, as as. I'm a train buff, and I found the Great Northern Explorer train, which will be taking from Rotora up to Palmerston area, um, which is a sightseeing train that runs through Australia. So, we're, And we're doing some stops along the Great Ocean Road. So, again, we're trying to throw in some of those cultural aspects as well. And um, and then also in New Zealand, uh, Michael and I have the opportunity. We're planning on doing about a two- to three-hour master class on rose garden design and care and all things like that. So it's a lot of, you know, we're hoping what people are going to have is a lot of one-on-one -on -one time with Michael and or myself and, and uh, Michael's partner, Rosie's coming as well, who is a renowned horticulturist in her own right. Um, so there's going to be, and, and as Michael said, a lot of camaraderie, a lot of meals shared together and just a lot of fun. Now, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, tell our people where to go for more information. For the Australian, New Zealand one, uh, you need to um, look at Botanica Tours. I think Botanica Tours. Um, so yeah, yeah just... BotanicaTours.com. <laughs> yeah, and uh, there'll be the Australian New Zealand one uh, in there. Yeah, and, and you can fault? search that by... Uh, yeah, well, you can... Um, when you go to Botanica Tours, if you put in the search engine, you either put my last name, Zimmerman, or Michael's last name, Marriott, the tours will automatically filter up. Um, so you don't have to hunt for them. That's a real easy way. Um, what I've done with mine is on my website, which is just paulzimmermanroses.com. From the homepage, there's a link to a page that has information and links to every single, all the tours, including the one that Michael and I are doing. That's another easy way to get in there as well. Um, and, you know, Michael and I are all over the Internet. If nothing else, just, you know, find one of us and ask us about it. and We'll point you in the right direction. Yeah, and I, I, I've got my own website as well. So it's Michael Marriott Rosarian. And there you'll find out about our Todd tours as well. And then uh, I'm on Instagram as well. So Michael Rosarian, and you'll see various um, advertisements in that for various things as well. So, yeah. Yeah, Michael's, uh, Todd, uh, Michael's Todd tours, if people have, don't know about them, um, it, they're, 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 they tend to be a day, right, Michael? And they're in various parts of England. Yeah. You usually use it, you and Rosie, and it's touring gardens and workshops. And so if you're in England and want to grab some quick one-day things, be sure to check out Michael's Todd tours. They are fantastic. And by the way, Todd starts stands for two old duffers, <laughs> <laughs> but they they have become very popular and uh, and uh, well, we love doing them, and a lot of other people love doing them. So just one day tours in various parts of the country. So 
yeah, see, check those yeah, out. Yeah, it's, 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 it, it's a wonderful opportunity if you can't devote an entire week to something, that, to, you know, to do a sample a little bit and a little there. And because Michael's so well known in England, he has access to a lot of private gardens and things you wouldn't normally be allowed to get into. If you follow him on Instagram, you'll get to see some of the pictures of where they're going and where they've been. And they're incredible tours. Quick, easy, and uh, just beautiful places. They go places I've never heard of, and you probably haven't either. <laughs> Just wonderful. Well, time sure flies when you're having fun. Guys, this has been so fun to have you. Well, it's been great. I really enjoyed it. Guys, just thanks so much. Have great days. And friends, thank you for joining us too. We hope you're now more than ready to get in the garden. Until next time, happy gardening. You've been listening to the Rose Chat Podcast with Chris Van Cleve and Teresa Byington, expert rose gardeners who want to help you achieve the rose garden of your dreams. Don't miss an episode. Listen anytime on our website at rosechatpodcast.com or listen on the go via the Rose Chat app on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. Share this podcast with your social networks and join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by using the hashtag RoseChat. Join us next time for another edition of the Rose Chat Podcast. The Rose Chat Podcast is a production of the Rose Chat Media Group, Birmingham, Alabama.